Cry Most Queer is a South African LGBTQ true crime podcast intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. Welcome to the very first episode of A Crime Most Queer. I'm NJ Hawkeby, and over the next six months, I'm going to be exploring cases of true crime involving the South African LGBTQ community. Before we start, let me just put it out there that although this isn't my first foray into podcasting, this is my first time tackling true crime. So please bear with me while I find my feet, and if you have any comments or suggestions, please join our Facebook group and let me know. You'll find a link to this in our show notes. Being queer myself, I wanted to document an aspect of queer history that is often overlooked or misrepresented in the media. As a true crime fan, I was surprised at how little coverage queer crime gets in the mainstream media. And to be honest, when I started researching the subject, I was amazed by two things. Firstly, I realized that in many cases I will be covering, there was only one or two degrees of separation between me and people who were directly involved. Secondly, of the cases that I didn't have a close connection to, I actually had no idea that even occurred. My intention is to bridge this gap and raise awareness within our community and society at large that these cases actually happened. Today's case is one where I both had a direct connection to someone involved and also I hadn't a clue that it had even happened. And I thought maybe this was a good place to start. But let's first discuss the meaning behind the name of the podcast, A Crime Most Queer, and what you can expect from this and every other episode from here on out. Firstly, the name. I chose it because of the double meaning of the term queer. The first meaning is, obviously, in reference to the LGBTQ community. As each episode will deal with a story that has a direct link to our community. The other meaning is unusual or bizarre. Queer-related crime often has quite a few twists, and I will seek out these twists that make the story interesting. Every two weeks, I will look at cases that fit these two criteria. I'll be getting my hands dirty wading through newspaper articles, court documents, television documentaries, and true crime literature, and I'll also try and track down people who were either present or directly affected by these cases in an attempt to get inside the heads of the perpetrators. Now, not all of our cases will be crimes against the community. There have been cases where the aggressor has actually identified as LGBT. I thought long and hard about this, and decided not to only focus on crimes against our community. I think it's important to remind everybody, including ourselves, that the queer community is just like the rest of society. We have good guys, and we have bad guys. Sometimes with a victim, and sometimes with the perpetrator. It's no different to the rest of the country, and in fact the world. That said, I will in future episodes also be looking at cluster cases of crimes that specifically target our community, like corrective rape, gay bashings, dating app-related crime, and LGBT rights abuses across Africa. Some of the cases I will cover are very high profile, others less so, but each one fits the bill of a crime most queer. Now, what can you expect? 
What you'll be getting is my take on the case. I have no intention of trying to be objective in my coverage of the cases I present. To quote Nicole Engelbrecht, one of the people who acted as a sort of advisor for this podcast, who's a true crime podcaster herself. The intention of this podcast is not to stop the perpetrators from having a second chance at life. It is to give the victims a voice, and unfortunately, that will often have the side effect of bringing hatred towards the perp. But their rights will never supersede the victims' rights to have their voice heard. Also, one thing I've noticed in researching these cases is I'm often left with tons more questions and theories than when I started. Questions and theories that often stray from the official story. So consider this my soapbox, and at the end of every episode, if I have any theories or questions on the case I've covered in that particular episode, I'll share these with you. You can make up your mind, and if you would like, we can discuss them on the Facebook group. I don't expect you to share my views, but I really do enjoy a healthy debate, and I would love to hear from you, as long as we can all be adults about it. Another warning, it was mentioned in the beginning, I do tend to swear a lot, but not unjustifiably so. So, if you have a problem with swearing, maybe this podcast isn't for you. Finally, while I try to get the people I interview to speak to me on the record, using their own voices, sometimes this is not possible. And I'm not opposed to using voice actors to reenact certain conversations or lines in the script. This is done purely so that you don't only have to listen to my voice waffling on, but I do provide a full list of my cast for each episode in the show notes, so you know exactly who is the actual person and who is portraying a role. Please note, I don't pay anyone for their story, because I don't believe anyone should profit off someone else's misfortune, but I do compensate my voice actors, because they are after all providing a service. But enough of all the housekeeping, let's get into today's episode. Deadly Friends. This is the story of three people whose paths had crossed many times before, but one fateful Monday night, their paths would cross for the last time in the most tragic way, leaving the Durban queer community reeling. On Tuesday, the 27th of May, 2008, Annika Thoft and Daniel Robertson, two friends who shared an upstairs flat at 58 8th Avenue in the upmarket Durban suburb of Morningside, were found in their respective beds. Both had been shot in the head. Both had been stabbed. The motive appeared to be robbery. I found it difficult to find friends and colleagues of the victims who were willing to talk to me, possibly for reasons I'll get into shortly so I've had to rely heavily on court documents, media reports, and social media posts from the time. However, there are still huge gaps in the victims' pasts, and while I have consciously tried to avoid assumption, I did what I could to connect the dots. Please bear with me on this, and if you knew Annika and Daniel and hear anything that I got wrong, please correct me in our Facebook group. Ruth Annika Thoft was born in Norway in the early to mid-50s. She was one of three, and was idolised by her brothers, who called her Nika. Around 1978, Annika decided to relocate to South Africa, and chose to settle in the bustling coastal city of Durban. While not much is known of her early days in South Africa, well, nothing that's documented at any rate, what is known is that, according to a written submission by one of her brothers to the courts, 
Annika loved South Africa. She loved the people, the sunshine and the freedom. Over the years, she built up a large circle of friends in the lesbian community, and from all accounts, she was loved by all who knew her. She was also an avid golfer, and would often travel the country taking advantage of South Africa's many world-class golf courses. Annika worked for Continental Printing Inks in Pinetown as a sales rep, and was well-liked by her colleagues. Speaking to the local Durban press at the time, a co-worker, Cedric Curtin, described her as such a pleasant woman, soft at heart. He went on to say that she did not deserve to have this happen to her. Daniel Robertson was a very well-known and well-respected member of the Durban gay scene. He was 36 years old, known to his friends as Donnie, and he worked at The Lounge, a gay nightclub in Stamford Hill Road, as the entertainment manager. But right from the off in this story, things started to get a little weird. I reached out to someone who had known Donnie and Annika back in the day, requesting a telephone interview. He seemed amenable to the idea, and even offered to put me in touch with another friend of Donnie's. He asked me to give him a couple of days to set it up, and I ended the conversation feeling quite excited about getting to hear a first-hand account of the kind of people Donnie and Annika were. In a nutshell, I thought all was well. Then, on the day that we were supposed to nail down a definite time and date for our telephone interview, I received an intriguing text. I was informed that he was no longer willing to record an interview with me. He went on to say, and I quote, I've been advised not to attach my name to anyone associated with the case, as I could get targeted for a hate crime myself, and the friend I wanted to refer to you doesn't want to risk his safety either. I was a little taken aback, but I let him know that I understood, and asked if he was open to answering a few questions on condition of anonymity, to which he agreed. So I'm going to call him Justin, this is obviously not his real name. Back in 2006, Justin was a fresh-faced teenager who would party his weekends away at the lounge. According to one social media post I found, Donnie never missed an opportunity to talk to someone or make someone's day. So it was inevitable that Justin and Donnie would get to know each other. What follows is a recreation of my conversation with Justin based on our various chats which took place over a number of days via telephone and email. I guess the most logical place to start is at the beginning. How well did you know Donnie? I met him back in 2006. Donnie was probably the first openly gay person I met. He was the host of the Roman Lounge at the time, and I basically met him and Annika when I walked in the door. I remember I begged my older sister that week to take me to my first gay bar. I didn't know it at the time, but she was the one person I could trust to safely let me experience my first evening around like-minded and LGBTQ-oriented people. I walked in and was immediately asked for my ID by Annika, who wasn't too convinced I was old enough to enter. Dani, on the other hand, had met my sister the week before, when she and her friends had gone there to watch a comedy show. My sister chatted to Dani and I'm sure an arrangement was made to look after me that night. I went to the bar and asked Annika if they serve cocktails. She said I could enter the club, but she knew I was underage so I was only allowed to order non-alcoholic beverages. What was Donnie like? He was a very sweet, strange and delightful queen, with so much energy and was always smiling and laughing. There wasn't a person in the club that had a bad thing to say about him. He always dressed up to the theme, and boy did he love themes. He loved it even more if he turned up slaying your look. 
He had a way of making you feel appreciated for putting in an effort. And Annika? What was she like? Annika was a bit intimidating to me. It was probably because she saw right through me at my age. It was in 2008 that I turned 18, and I could finally be treated like an adult. Although, over the years, she knew I was sneaking drinks. She would make sure I wouldn't get too carried away, and once or twice even wanted to call my sister and send me home. Although she came across as mean, her intentions were pure. I guess you could say she had a big sister vibe about her. After Donnie's death, a friend of his set up a memorial page on social media. The outpouring of love spoke volumes. As mentioned, he was very popular in the Durban gay scene, with friends remembering him as a Durban original sister who was the life and soul of the party, a sweet and genuine friend who will be sadly missed, and adored and loved by many. Donnie had previously lived on the Berea, I'll get back to that in a moment. But at some point during the 18 months before his murder, he had taken to sharing a flat with Annika. As far as I can make out, the two friends made good flatmates, often entertaining together, and that final Monday night was no different, but we'll get back to that too. Okay, so one thing about being the accused in a murder trial, your entire life is put under a microscope. As much as I struggled to find info on Donnie and Annika, Gordon Christian Fenikayak's entire history was laid out before me in intricate detail. So let's begin. Gordon was an attractive, blonde, 23-year-old originally from Johannesburg, who was relatively well-known in the Durban gay scene, having previously worked as a topless barman at the lounge, the same establishment where Donnie worked as a manager. I actually thought he was straight. He seemed to get along with everyone and even entertained the older, flirtatious men at the bar, but he often looked as if he had somewhere else to be or not really wanting to be there, in that moment. He had a mystery about him, like someone with a secret that was bearing down on him. Did you ever suspect that this air of mystery he had would lead to murder? No, I don't think that anyone in our small community would do what he did to our own people. Perhaps I could have perceived that Gordon could have been capable of petty theft or drugs, maybe. He did come across as though he had seen hard days in his life, but I don't think anyone would have suspected him to be a murderer. Indeed, Gordon's life, especially his early childhood, had to a certain extent been difficult, although things did get a little easier as he entered his teens. And he also found himself being presented with opportunities that most other young people can only dream of. But let me not get ahead of myself. Let's go right back to the beginning. Gordon's mother, Erica Finikak, had fallen pregnant at the age of 21 when she was still a student. She claimed that Gordon's father, also named Gordon, wanted to marry her, but that his mother had refused and made things difficult financially for Gordon Sr. to ensure that this didn't happen. Erica, being adopted herself, was determined to keep her baby, and Gordon was born on the 16th of January 1985. He and his mother lived with his maternal grandparents, but when Gordon was just six months old, his grand passed away. Erica had it rough financially. Gordon Sr. was almost entirely out of the picture, and although the maintenance court had awarded her maintenance of 60 rand a month, about 850 rand, or 55 US dollars for our international listeners, in today's money, Gordon Sr. would only pay every two or three months. Because of the long hours she worked, 
Little Gordon would be dropped off and picked up from crash by his grandfather, whom he grew very close to. Sadly, when Gordon was about two, so about 18 months after Gordon's grandmother died, his grandfather became friendly with a woman he had met while dropping Gordon at crash. Six months later, the two were married and set off on a three-month honeymoon, in effect disappearing from Gordon's life. On their return, his new step-grandmother put her foot down, refusing to babysit Gordon, and so Erica and Gordon saw very little of the two of them. This, says Erica, had a severe impact on Gordon, instilling in him serious abandonment issues. From then on, it was just Erica and Gordon. Money was still extremely tight, what with the pathetic salaries working women in the mid-80s could expect. And Erica was retrenched several times when companies she worked for downsized. By the time Gordon reached grade 4, now aged 10, Erica was forced to hold down two jobs, working in an office by day and as a waitress at night, just to make ends meet. She decided to send Gordon off to Becker Primary, a dual-medium boarding school in Michalisburg, west of Johannesburg, which offered tuition in English and Afrikaans. Erica didn't mention it in her written submission, but I can only imagine how much this must have played on Gordon's abandonment issues. However, he would come home every second weekend, and Erica made sure that she did not have any waitressing shifts on the Fridays and Saturday nights that he was home. Gordon also managed to make friends at the school, and he would often go off with them on the weekends that he wasn't home with his mom. When Gordon was 11, Erica met Rudy Simplar. Not long afterwards, in December 1996, the three of them took a trip to Cape Town, and while there, Erica and Gordon went to see Gordon's paternal grandfather. It was during this visit that Gordon met his father for the first time. It wasn't the greatest of meetings, however. His father, who called him Christo, remembers him as a well-mannered child who only wanted love and attention. But he admits this was something he struggled with, because he saw himself as just the biological father and not a real parent. Halfway through the following year, Erica moved in with Rudy in Kempton Park on Gauteng's East Rand, and they were subsequently married. Gordon was given the option to remain at boarding school, or transferred to a day school in the area, as money was now less tight, with theirs becoming a two-income household. Erica no longer needed to work two jobs, and she was able to be at home in the evenings and on weekends, should Gordon need her. Gordon jumped at the chance to come home to his mom. But although he liked and respected his stepfather, he found it difficult to have to now share his mother, not only with his stepfather, but also with his stepfather's son from a previous marriage, Craig. Craig would visit every second weekend, but the following year he would come and stay with the family permanently, and from here Gordon seemed to take him under his wing, as a big brother should. Gordon's new family dynamic caused significant internal conflict for him. Having grown up with an absent father, who he only met when he was 11, and then didn't hear from again for 5 years, Gordon kept Rudy at a distance. Erica says, this made Gordon feel guilty towards Rudy, while also feeling neglected by the father he felt he ought to stay loyal to. Despite all this, Gordon's last 18 months in primary school at last school Kreinsach was a generally happy time. Unfortunately, his high school career 
started off less pleasant. A few years earlier, Gordon had been attacked by a dog, leaving significant scarring on his face as well as inhibiting the growth of one of his front teeth. This disfigurement had made him the target of playground bullies. The bullying had stopped only after he had undergone dental surgery to fix his teeth. On the day of his high school induction, a dog ran out in front of his bicycle and he went over the handlebars and faceplanted the road, breaking the tooth that had been repaired only two years before and breaking his other front tooth in half, requiring emergency surgery. Let me just sidebar here for a moment. Now, I too grew up on the East Rand, and oddly enough, I too went over the handlebars of my bicycle as a child, faceplanting the road and breaking my front tooth in half. Let me assure you, roads in Boxburg where I grew up and Kenton, where Gordon stayed, are rough. It's like they scatter the ground with those stones used to reinforce concrete and then lightly drizzle tar all over them, just enough to keep them down. Trust me, you hit the deck face first on those roads and you know all about it. Gordon knew all about it. This meant that Gordon started high school with two recently mended teeth that looked odd and a face full of cuts and grazes. Naturally, this made him a target all over again for bullying. Sadly, this would set the tone for his entire time at the school. He tried to put in a brave face at home so as not to worry his mother, but it was obvious that he was miserable. And despite having him see the school psychologist, eventually Erica and Rudy had Gordon transferred to another local high school, who was school Birchley, where he was much happier. Labour law in South Africa prohibits children younger than 14 from working. But as soon as Gordon turned 15, he went out and found himself a part-time job, working as a waiter at the local Nando's. He was very proud of the fact that he could work and ease the financial burden on his family. He was also active in the Trekkers, the Afrikaans equivalent of the Scouts, having joined when he was in grade 6 and staying in the troop until the end of grade 10, where he dropped out of school to join his mother and stepfather who were planning to move to the Netherlands. This move, however, didn't happen just yet, as Rudy's employment contract was extended and the family remained in South Africa. Gordon got himself another waitering job, again part-time, and remained there until, in early 2002, the family relocated in Nelspreet, a four-hour drive east of Johannesburg. Once in Nelspreet, Gordon decided that he wanted to get his matric certificate and enrolled for distance learning with Intech College. Around the same time, he got a job at Scooters, a pizza franchise, as a pizza delivery boy, where his loyalty to the company did not go unnoticed, and within a year, he had moved up to assistant manager. Erica recalls that he was a hard worker, taking double shifts wherever possible, and often working from the moment the store opened until it closed at night. Again, I'd like to sidebar. I'm not sure if Gordon choosing to work the long hours was just him being loyal to the company, or if he didn't really feel all that comfortable at home. But this is just me musing. Let's get back to the story. Unfortunately, all this hard work got in the way of Gordon's studies, and he managed to only write two of the required seven subjects he needed to get his matric. Nevertheless, Gordon seemed happy in Nelspreet, and according to Erica, made many friends. But he wanted to expand his work experience, 
and he convinced his parents to help him secure a two-year student holiday visa to the United Kingdom. He set off for London in October 2004, but it would seem that his time in the UK was not the greatest, and he was very, very lonely. However, true to form, he didn't complain to his parents. He worked as a barman in a nightclub on Old Compton Street, and six months later, he was promoted to bar manager. It was while he was living in London that he began experimenting with drugs, such as ecstasy and cocaine. Now, being the harm reductionist that I am, I take issue with societies blaming drug use for abhorrent behaviour. But experimenting is very much a relative term, and there is no indication of how extensive this experimentation was. But be that as it may, his working holiday was cut short less than a year into his stay, when the UK laws changed and student holiday visa working hours were limited. Unable to support himself, he gave into his homesickness and returned to South Africa in July 2005. While Gordon was abroad, Erica and Rudy moved to Secunda, and on his return, he went to stay with him. However, a week later, he moved back to Nelspreet, where he was offered his old job at Scooters, and he started there on the 1st of August 2005. This meant that he wouldn't get to see his parents much, because he was now more than 260 kilometers away from them. In December 2006, Erica and Rudy finally made the move to the Netherlands. But Gordon stayed behind because, now over the age of 21, it was difficult for him to obtain the necessary visa to join them. Besides, he said he was happy in South Africa, and I'm sure, with the memories of the loneliness he had experienced in London still fresh in his mind, he wanted to stay where he had friends. Also, he had, over the years, reconnected with his biological father by phone. But in January 2007, when the Scooters franchise where he had now progressed to general manager was sold, he decided to move to Hermanus, a coastal town about 120 kilometers southeast of Cape Town, to live with his dad and his dad's girlfriend. Now, as to be expected, accounts differ depending on which parent you ask. His father claimed that Gordon wanted to move to the Cape, and he offered Gordon a place to stay while he found his feet. According to Gordon Sr., Gordon was very isolated, and took a while to settle in and find a job. But he was very helpful and caring towards both his father and his father's girlfriend, and often took the dogs for a walk on the beach. His father said that he seemed gentle-natured and incapable of violence, although he noticed that Gordon tended to exaggerate and twist facts to make himself seem better than he actually was. And while his father gave no indication that he disapproved of his son's sexuality, he made a point of noting that Gordon seemed to flaunt his sexuality for shock value rather than just allowing people to accept him for who he was. Finally, according to Gordon Sr., his son was known to drink and party heavily. He also claimed that he discovered, once Gordon had left Hermanus, that he had been involved in the drug scene. How accurate this is, I cannot say, as Gordon claims that he abstained from drugs for over two years after returning from London. His mother, on the other hand, tells a different story. She claims that Gordon's father, who owns a restaurant in Amanus, asked him to move down so they could get to know each other, and said that he had worked for him at his restaurant. But this job failed to materialise, and Gordon had to set about finding a job on his own. 
Also, according to Erica, rather than getting to know each other, Gordon saw very little of his dad, who was either busy at the restaurant or on the golf course, and Gordon became increasingly lonely. No surprise here, but there's a third version of the story, because Gordon himself claims that he found a job within days of arriving in Amanus, as a bar manager at Burgundy Restaurant on Market Square, and he started on February the 1st, 2007. No matter which story you choose to believe, it was in late May that Gordon packed his bags and made his way up the coast to Durban. Erica had contacted a long-time family friend, Jenna Anderson, who had known Gordon since the age of four, and Erica arranged for Gordon to stay with Jenna and her two kids. The plan was for Gordon to study event management, as he displayed a knack for and a solid interest in the hospitality industry. I could find nothing on whether Gordon actually started his studies, but while staying with Jenna and her family, he secured a job, first as a barman, before being promoted to Function Coordinator Deputy Manager at Crinkley Bottom Park, a bar and restaurant in Hillcrest on the outskirts of Greater Durban. By Erica's account, while Gordon was living with Jenna and working at Crinkley Bottom Park, Jenna noticed that Gordon had started using drugs. When confronted about it, Gordon admitted to it, but as his parents could not afford a full-time drug program, he attended weekly meetings. However, Gordon claims that his drug use only started up again in February 2008, and that he started using again because living on his own in Durban made him feel lonely. Anyway, this is where first-hand accounts I've received differ from the court records. According to the case file, Gordon was still employed at Crinkley Bottom Park at the time of his arrest, but I've heard from the few people willing to speak to me about this case that Gordon left Crinkley Bottom Park, although why and precisely when he left is uncertain. Regardless, he soon landed the job at the lounge, but in late April 2008, he was fired. No worries, he soon secured a job as a waiter at Beanbag Bohemia, a trendy night spot with a mixed clientele near Gravel Racecourse, that was considered by locals and tourists alike as a cultural hub of Durban. But this job didn't last very long either, and Gordon was soon let go. Now unemployed, Gordon found himself facing homelessness, until it was proposed that he rent a room from friends of a friend who lived in Morningside Gardens, a sprawling complex of simplex and duplex apartments. Longtime friends Ashley Gray and David Normanton opened up their home to Gordon and he moved in on Thursday, May the 22nd, arriving with a small bag with just a few personal possessions. I wanted to get a far better understanding of Gordon, so I sat down with David and asked him about the first impression he got from him. He seemed like a very nice chap, uh, seemed confident, relaxed, very, very pleasant, uh, down-to-earth kind of guy. Did you ever suspect that he could be capable of murder? Not in a million years, never. There was no way you could think of anyone like that. Anyone like him like that. How did you meet him? Through a mutual friend um, who was trying to start up a a relationship with him. Okay. Uh, Actually met him for the first time at Beanbag before he left there. Okay. So that was a few weeks before... Mm. Yes. Okay. 
Um, there was mention of that he was a rent boy. Is this true? For those of you who don't know, a rent boy is essentially a male escort. A usually younger guy who will spend time in the company of older men for financial compensation. Sex isn't necessarily part of the service they offer, but more often than not, sex is involved. That I don't know. I heard the rumours, but I couldn't answer that, unfortunately. David tells me that he remembers the 25th of May as an unusually warm Sunday afternoon. He'd been out that morning at the flower shop he worked at part-time back then, and he arrived home at about 2.30 in the afternoon. He, Ashley and Gordon spent the rest of the afternoon just relaxing and watching TV. However, they soon noticed Gordon writing something in a diary that he had. When asked what he was doing, Gordon replied that he was compiling a list of things he still needed to pick up from his friend's place, which he then showed to them. According to David, the list was extensive, including items like a laptop, a CD rack and CD cases, or as David put it, all sorts of arbitrary, arbitrary stuff. And this brings us back to Donia and Annika, right where we left them. The two friends made good flatmates and they would often entertain together. That Monday night, the 26th of May 2008, was no different. Gordon arrived at Donnie and Annika's flat at about 5 or 6pm, and they started drinking. He and Donnie were working their way through Donnie's red wine, while Annika enjoyed a few drams of whiskey. They were sitting in the lounge, which was right next to Annika's bedroom, socialising until around 10pm, when Annika retired to her bedroom. It was, after all, a weeknight, and she had a job to get to the next day. Once Annika had gone to bed, the boys moved the party to Donnie's bedroom on the opposite side of the flat, so as not to disturb Annika's sleep. And according to Gordon, they consumed more wine and mixed the alcohol with tranquilizers in order to get drunk faster, although this claim would later be disputed by the state during the hearing. Donnie soon fell asleep, and Gordon saw an opportunity to solve his financial woes, or as he put it, to start a new life. Initially when I heard this, I suspected that Gordon may have intentionally drugged Donnie so he could take care of business, i.e. the robbery, without Donnie getting in the way. But I could find no evidence of this, so perhaps it was more a case of needing Dutch courage, rather than intentionally roofing Donnie. Gordon eased himself off the bed, removed something from his shoulder bag, and started to make his way around the room, gathering items he intended to make off with. All items on the list he'd been compiling the day before. As it turned out, it was a shopping list for murder. So, do you think the, do you think the crime was premeditated? The robbery definitely was. The murder, I'm not so sure about. Alright, let me pause for a moment. In researching this story, I managed to get my hands on a copy of the prosecution's case file, and these included the crime scene photos. I'm about to go into seriously graphic detail about what happened next, but before I do, I think it's necessary to repeat the trigger warning from the start of the episode. This is the official story as pieced together from Gordon's statement to the police, the post-mortem reports, and the crime scene photos. What was done to Donnie was terrible. But Gordon's attack on Annika was especially gruesome, to say the least. And it would be advisable for those with a sensitive disposition to skip ahead. You can safely jump ahead about two and a half minutes if you would rather not know the extent of the injuries. Ready? 
Let's go. Let's jump back a few seconds. Remember I mentioned before Gordon embarked on his little shopping spree? He removed an item from his shoulder bag. The item in question was a Rossi 38 Special Snubnose Revolver. Why he did this was either never disclosed or never documented. But either way, with the gun now close at hand, Gordon busied himself gathering his loot until at one point he noticed Donnie starting to wake up. Realising his plan was about to go pear-shaped, Gordon lifted the firearm, aimed it at Donnie's head, and fired a single shot. The bullet entered Donnie's head just in front of his left ear and lodged itself in the frontal lobe of his brain. Unsure whether he was dead, Gordon grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed Donnie once in the neck. The blade missed all vital arteries, but that was of little consequence. Donnie was already dead. Worried that the gunshot had woken Annika, Gordon made his way to her bedroom. She was lying on her side with her back to the door, but as he entered the room, she started to turn over, mumbling something that Gordon claimed to be unable to make out. He raised the revolver a second time and fired one shot. The bullet entered her skull through her right eye, shattering her eye socket, passed through her brain and lodged itself in the top of her spine. He then rushed over to the bed and plunged the knife into the flesh over her right shoulder blade, literally stabbing the woman who had invited him into her home in the back. He thrust the knife into her five more times before placing the muzzle of the gun against the left side of Annika's head and firing a second shot, this time at point-blank range. The bullet passed through her brain and exited in front of her right ear. According to the post-mortem, both victims died from gunshot wounds to the head. According to the crime scene photos, the bedrooms were both blood baths. But while Donnie looked peacefully asleep, Annika's face was a mess. Looking at the photos, she is almost unrecognisable. Wait, I have questions. First, where the hell did he get the gun? That I don't know. Um, I never knew of him having a gun. Like, I'd known him for about two, two, three weeks maximum. I'd never known of him having a gun at all. Um, it could have been something from where he, where he was visiting that evening. I've, that's pure speculation on my part. I don't know. Thanks to Gordon's statement, I found out soon enough. In July or August 2007, Gordon claimed that he started getting threatening phone calls from people he owed money to. Whether this money was for drugs or cash loans is unclear, but what is known is that he purchased a Rossi 38 Special Revolver from a woman named Linda Nordier. I have no details on this person, but I do know that Gordon was not licensed to carry a firearm. So the sale was 100% illegal. Going back to the conflicting stories of when Gordon started using drugs again, I'm suddenly more inclined to believe Erica's version because A, she has no reason to lie, and B, Gordon illegally purchased the firearm to protect himself from people he owed money to, which sounds more like something you would do to protect yourself from drug dealers. But this blows his claims of abstinence until February 2008 completely out of the water, 
as this was at least six months before he claimed to have gone back on the drugs. It all smells very fishy to me. I must just say that the knife also caught my attention. When I first started researching this case, I found no mention of a stabbing. And it took me a little bit by surprise when David brought it up. There was a knife? Yes. Um, the police came around on the Wednesday to our place. Actually, just to clarify so that you're not confused, this happened on the Thursday, not the Wednesday. But let me not interrupt. Sorry, David. Do, please continue. Because he was staying with us. Um, this one mutual friend who had introduced us to him arranged him to stay with us for a while while mm -hmm. he was finding his own place in that. And the police came around with him to pick up all the goods that he had stolen from Barney and Annika's. And in the cupboard that he was using in, the, in his room, they found a knife, uh, which apparently had been involved. Okay, there was no mention of a stabbing or slashing in the articles I read. In fact, the stabbings weren't even included in the list of charges, despite there being multiple scrawled notes on the court documents I received, insisting that if Gordon wanted to confess, he had to confess to all of it, including the stabbings. Nevertheless, I found this rather interesting. Considering the name of the podcast, I may even say queer, because a knife had featured prominently in another incident one and a half years earlier. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's come back to that later. Um, another question. As far as I can make out, they were staying in a garden cottage on their landlady's property. Why didn't she hear the gunshots? There were three of them. The only thing I can think of is that Monday night when the murders took place, there was a rather large James Blunt concert at Botanic Gardens. Okay. Um, she could have been there. Um, also, those old properties mm -hmm. are a lot more soundproof because of the thick walls and everything that, than the properties are that are built today. Okay. Um, but I, I suspect she probably wasn't around. Um, it turned out to be a very popular night for being out that Monday night. Right. With the murders done and dusted, let's move on to Tuesday. Now, while I said in the beginning that I tried to avoid assumption, here is where things got a little hazy at times, because especially for the early morning hours, I only had Gordon's statement to go on, and he didn't go into much detail on what actually happened when. So assumption, and a lot of referring to Google Maps to check travel times between two points, is all I really had to go on. But I think I've been able to piece together the most likely timeline of events. With Annika having gone to bed at about 10pm, and Donnie and Gordon moving to Donnie's bedroom shortly afterwards, Donnie would have probably fallen asleep at about 11.30 or 12. That would have given Gordon about one and a half to two hours to creep around the flat and start gathering the items on the shopping list that David mentioned seeing him compiling the Sunday before. He would also have had plenty of time to grab the knife from the kitchen, as it was established 
that the knife he had used was taken from Dani and Annika's place. Unfortunately, the medical examiner was unable to establish an exact time of death, because when the bodies were removed from the scene, they were taken to the morgue and placed in the freezer, and the post-mortems were only carried out on the following day. However, let's just assume for a moment that I'm correct. This would mean that the murders took place about 1am, and Gordon would have needed to clean himself up. The shirt he was wearing that night was found in a plastic bag in his bedroom, so it's safe to assume that he cleaned up at the scene. He then loaded the pulpit items into Annika's VW Polo and fled. Items found in his possession after his arrest included Annika's laptop, two digital cameras, a pair of binoculars, CDs, towels, a duvet and two mirrors, along with Annika's credit card. Other items he took away with him included a box of Annika's personal documents and Donnie's anti-anxiety medication that had been prescribed to him following another trauma he had suffered some months before. If my timeline is correct, Gordon would have left Donnie and Annika's flat somewhere between 2.15 and 2.45. This would have given him enough time to go down to the beachfront in order to, as he claimed, clear his head. It is here that he appears to have gone through the box of personal documents he grabbed from Annika's bedroom and discarded what was of no use to him, such as Annika's passport and other papers in a rubbish bin. From here, now probably around 3.30, he made the 40-minute drive to Hillcrest. From what I can make out, when Gordon had been working at Crinkley Bottom Park, one of his responsibilities had been to open up shop in the morning, for which he had been given a set of keys. It is unclear whether, on Gordon leaving their employ, management simply neglected to ask for these keys back, or whether he had made a copy of the keys, possibly with future plans in mind. Either way, that morning Gordon used keys that he still had to let himself into Crinkley Bottom Park. There he laid claim to an Epson multimedia projector and about a thousand rand in cash, around 1800 rand or $115 today. He let himself out at about 4.40 and made his way home, arriving there at around 5.25, which ties in with what David told me. Talk to me about that Tuesday. How did things play out? That Tuesday morning, I woke up. Um, I was going off to a client on Windermere Road uh, to continue with an audit. Besides working at the time, as I've already mentioned, part-time at a florist, David's day job is actually as an accountant. I was going for a bath. It was about 5.30 in the morning, and Gordon came in carrying, if I remember correctly, a CD case with CDs in it, and he had some mirrors that he'd already brought inside, and he was taking everything up to his room. I went for my normal bath, was getting ready and everything else. And because I wasn't going directly to the office, I was going to a client first, left home a bit later than normal. Um, so about quarter past seven, I said I was going to leave. And Gordon said, no, 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 I'll give you a lift down in my friend's car. They've, he said they'd let him borrow it. Okay. Um, and then we went down and he dropped me off on Windermere Road, just opposite Windermere Centre to, to visit my client. Now... I must say that this takes balls of steel. Because 
8th Avenue T-junctions into the back of Windermere Centre. Gordon dropped David off in Annika's car, less than 250 metres from where Dani and Annika lay dead. In fact, when I looked at the area on Google Maps, David's client's shop faces straight down one of the streets that cross over 8th Avenue. In what must be the most astounding coincidence I have ever come across, this particular crossing street is the closest one to Dani and Annika's flat. Like I said, balls of steel. When I mentioned this to David, he admitted that he hadn't actually put two and two together on this until I brought it up. And he wondered if Gordon had offered to drop him off at work that day because it would put him in the area to go back and claim more of Dani and Annika's things. Whether he did or didn't go back is unknown, but it is known that Gordon eventually made his way back to the townhouse in Morningside Gardens, and then he took Ashley out for breakfast at Gateway, a massive shopping complex in Amschlong Rocks, about 20 kilometers up the coast north of Durban. While David was getting settled into his workday, again, not even a quarter of a kilometer away as the crow flies, Annika and Dani's landlady became concerned when she didn't see Annika leaving for work as usual. She knocked on the flat door but received no answer. She tried calling Annika's mobile phone but had no reply. Eventually, she contacted the Berea police station. Meanwhile, down on North Beach, the tourist protection unit had found the box of Annika's documents that Gordon had dumped in the bin and contacted her employer, Continental Printing Inks. Detectives were told that Annika hadn't come to work that day, which was unusual. They were also informed that Annika drove a company car, which police would soon realise was missing. After breakfast, Gordon and Ashley spent the morning wandering around Gateway and doing a bit of shopping. Now, Ashley still had no idea what Gordon had been up to the night before, and at no point did he pick up anything unusual about Gordon's behaviour. This is something worth keeping in mind for later. After a while, Gordon suggested that the two of them travel to Peter Maritzburg, 80 kilometers inland, to visit a friend of Ashley's. They set off on the N3 highway, which runs between Durban and Johannesburg, passing through the Marion Hill toll plaza, where Gordon swiped Annika's credit card to pay the toll. Back in Morningside, police had descended on 8th Avenue, and they used a ladder to get up to the first story flat's window for a better look inside. On seeing a body, a locksmith was called to help him gain entry to minimize the risk of contaminating the scene. It was then that the full extent of what had transpired while the rest of Durban was partying the night away with James Blunt became jaw-droppingly apparent. At about three o'clock that afternoon, Ashley and Gordon made their way back to Durban. This time, however, at Marion Hill Toll Plaza, Gordon paid cash, most likely to give the impression that he had made a run for it, heading for Johannesburg. Over in Morningside, the investigation was only just getting started when the police caught an unexpected break from the strangest of places. That evening, or that afternoon after I'd finished the client, I caught the bus back up home, um, took the miner up, got home, and we were waiting for Gordon to return because he had the key tag to get in and out of the complex uh, for Morningside Gardens. 
and he didn't arrive, didn't arrive. We phoned him a number of times, and everything went straight to voicemail. Mm-hmm. And eventually we were able to organize with the security guard to let us out because we were going for dessert at the revolving restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, came home and still no sign of him. Eventually the next morning, uh, as I was waking up, I got a phone call from another friend to say Gordon had been arrested for murder. And it turned out on the Tuesday late afternoon, early evening, he'd gone driving by where Dani and, and Annika had been staying and neighbours in the area recognised it as, I think it was Annika's car and they pointed that out to the to police. They stopped him and arrested him. So you didn't make a run for it? Not that I made out, no. I think he realised it was a case of the jiggers up. Actually... Let's listen to Gordon's own words, as taken directly from his statement to the police. This is how he claims events transpired at this point in the timeline. I sat in my room for 30 minutes to an hour, thinking about what I had done. I felt depressed, emotional and very angry at myself. I then decided to go back to the deceased place and return the motor vehicle and go hand myself into the police. I call bullshit, and for oh so many reasons. But let's just deal with the official story for now. Firstly, he had spent the early hours of the morning on a one-man crime spree in two separate locations. And let's not forget his little interlude down at the beachfront where he rummaged through what he had plundered while probably planning his next move. Then he drops one of his housemates off at work, within spitting distance of the crime scene, without giving any indication that something was amiss. He then takes his other housemate out for breakfast at a spot of shopping, probably using the money he swiped from Crinkley Bottom Park, again, without giving any impression that something was bothering him. After that, he has the presence of mind to try and leave a trail, making it seem like he had fled to Johannesburg. But then, when he gets back to Durban, he suddenly feels all remorseful and decides to return the car and turn himself in. I'm not convinced. Neither is David. After I received the stack of court documents that included Gordon's statement to the police, and I read this, I gave David a call because I suddenly found that I had a shitload more questions. So do you think that he was actually going to go, go back and drop the car off, like he said, and hand himself into the police? Possible to drop the car off because we weren't far from where the, the murders took place. Mm-hmm. I do not believe he was going to hand himself, and I suspect, uh, judging by his shopping list that he had, that he actually wanted to go and get more stuff, hoping that things hadn't been discovered during the day. Did he, did he say that he was going to get more stuff? Not then, but he did say when um, he came in in the morning that he had more stuff to collect. Hmm. Interesting. Don't forget, the last time I saw him, before I saw him in court, mm-hmm. was that morning. Ah, okay. Were you home? Was Ashley already home when you when when you got got back from work? On the Tuesday, yes, he was. And Gordon was out. Gordon was out. Um, from what I can make out, because I got home probably about quarter past to half past five, because I would I used the minor that night. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I would leave leave work about twenty to five. So I'd have caught the mine at between ten to five and five generally. Mm-hmm. From what I could make out of this case of like I had just missed him within a matter of five minutes or so. Like I said, I call bullshit. I'm with David that Gordon's claim that what he had done was playing on his conscience was pure fiction. Neither of us buy for a second that remorse played even the slightest part in leading to Gordon's arrest. There's no way remorse would hit him after just a few hours. That would be at least overnight. Mm. Yeah, he is not sleeping it. Yeah. And I would say at least a couple of days. But I, I doubt with being around people the whole time, he'd have had a chance to think about that. Yeah. I would bet good money that had the coast been clear, he would have let himself back into that flat to finish what he had started and clean the place out. But the coast wasn't clear, and I'm not sure whether what happened next speaks to Gordon's arrogance that he could talk his way out of the situation, or if it was just plain old stupidity. Because, like, seriously? What happened next makes absolutely no sense. According to Gordon's statement, when he drove up to the flat, he found four people standing outside. But rather than hightailing it out of there, he parks the car and walks over to them. One of the men proceeds to grill him on how he happened to be in possession of Annika's car. Gordon replied that Annika had let him borrow it. The man responded that this was highly unlikely as Annika was very particular about her things. But besides that, as it was a company car, Annika knew that only she was authorised to drive it. Gordon then claims in his statement that the man then asked him if he would mind waiting for the police to come back. Somehow I think not. I suspect it was more of a case of don't you fucking move the cops on their way. Gordon was taken into custody by two Berea SAPS detectives, Benju Nunbol and Nolan Naidu, a mere hours after the bodies had been discovered and not even a full day after he had committed the crime. However, the charge at that stage was merely use of motor vehicle without consent. The following day, Gordon admitted to and was charged with two counts of murder. He would subsequently also be charged with one count each of robbery with aggravating circumstances, housebreaking with intent to steal and theft, unlawful possession of a firearm, and unlawful possession of ammunition, as more details of his one-man crime spree came to light. On the Wednesday morning, uh, this mutual friend who had introduced Gordon to us, uh, myself and my housemate, he decided to go and see at the uh, magistrate's court what was going on because the police cells are right next to the magistrate's court here in Durban and there was no sign of him or anything like that and then we heard it was going directly to the high court so Martin and the two of us we went down to see an advocate that he'd found somewhere next to the high court mm-hmm. um, Martin explained the situation and the advocate all but told Martin to cut his losses and leave everything alone uh, after 
we'd explain, Martin had explained everything to this advocate. Okay, so now that we have Gordon safely in police custody, I would like to digress briefly. We know of Gordon's crimes and the horrors he inflicted on his victims. But let's zoom out a little. Because one thing that became increasingly apparent as I delved deeper and deeper into this case was how many lives were irreversibly changed by the senseless double murder. This was especially true for our two victims, obviously. But David and Ashley didn't walk away unscathed either. The same could be said for Gordon's hopeful future boyfriend, Martin, who I actually feel particularly bad for because I get the definite feeling that Donnie's intentions for Gordon's visit went a little further than wine and conversation. And let's not talk about how much this must have affected Donnie and Annika's landlady. After all, someone needed to clean the flat and get it back to a state fit for renting. Annika's brothers also took it extremely hard. But if I was to guess, the hardest hit of everyone was Annika's parents. After the murders, Erling Friss Thoft, who was 86 at the time, spoke to the Norwegian tabloid VG, Norway's most read online newspaper, and claimed that Annika had mentioned that she wanted to return to Norway. In his grief, he painted South Africa in a very grim light, telling the Norwegian press that he wanted to warn Norwegians against the macabre happenings in this country, where he said murder is committed all the time. He claims that Annika had told him that South Africa was a lawless society where most people protected themselves with their own firearms, and lived behind high walls. Whether this was a grieving father lashing out at South African life based on second-hand information, or whether we as South Africans had become bomb-proof to the violence in our country, kind of like a frog in a slowly heated pot, is up for debate. What can't be argued is that a very old man had lost his daughter more than 10,000 kilometers away, and all because she and her flatmate had invited someone that they thought they knew into their home. The BG article shows a broken man sitting alone in his living room, surrounded by flowers and shattered by grief. In an emotional letter written by Annika's brother, Captain John Patrick Thoft, mostly addressing Gordon, he claims that he and his brother found it difficult to look their mother in the eyes, because, fearing for her health, they had chosen to lie to her about the brutality of Annika's death, and that they would scrutinize the newspapers, being selective in what they allowed her to read. He related that, every day, his 82-year-old mother would walk in near-freezing temperatures with snow falling around her to her daughter's grave to spend time with her. She would sit and talk and cry and wonder out loud if Annika had felt any pain and if she knew what was happening. There are two truly heart-wrenching parts of the letter. One is the revelation that Annika had been scheduled to fly to Oslo that year to celebrate her mother's 82nd birthday. Instead, her mother had had to fly to South Africa to fetch her daughter's body. Ironically, when the family flew back to Norway with Annika's remains in the cargo hold, they were on the very same flight that Annika had been booked on to fly home. The other was when Captain Thoft said, In butchering my sister, you murdered my mother. He also said, How we despise you for what you have done to our mother. Back in Durban, the queer community had been rocked to the core 
and it was yet another nail in the coffin of the gay nightlife scene. How did the murders affect the Durban gay scene? I remember when the news came out. It was all over social media. Back then, the community in Durban was small and soon everyone was talking about what had happened. I received a call from a friend who was just as shocked and confused. Every other weekend was spent at Beanbag Bohemia and the lounge. Everyone knew everyone and it was like a rumour bomb hit the club and soon all sorts of stories were flooding in. I've heard it said that the Durban gay scene kind of died after the murders. What was it like going out clubbing in Durban after it happened? By the end of 2008, most of my friends and myself were moving toward house parties and away from partying in the club nightlife scene. There were a number of robberies and gay bashings outside the club, and it was starting to get worse. There were a couple of people's drinks spiked at the club, and a lot of us were starting to go to other places to hang out. I think the murders were a final cherry on top of an already dangerous nightlife for the LGBTQ community in Durban. I remember so many dinner parties, house parties, straight clubs, and pub hops after that time. On occasion, we would go check how the lounge was doing and would realize how it had changed so much. All the regular faces and patrons had moved on. It was disappointing, so we would leave. Yes, but what was it like at the club? Look, the club was already in a bad location, but after 2008, it had started getting an even worse reputation. It was once a platform and a safe place for like-minded individuals and LGBTQ communities to come together, dance, socialize, and let their freak flags fly. But the decline of the one and only gay club in Durban, with stories of murder, drugs, rent boys, robberies, and underage teenagers causing fights, painted an ugly reputation and made many people in the community wary and cautious of where they would socialize. As David already mentioned, the following day, Thursday, May 29th, Gordon was accompanied to David and Ashley's duplex in Morningside Gardens by police officers, where they proceeded to collect evidence. This included taking photos of the clothing Gordon had been wearing on Monday night, the weapons he'd used in the attack, and of course, the stolen items in his possession. I showed David the photos taken in his home. One of them showed Gordon pointing out the revolver, hidden under the pillow on his bed. During a WhatsApp call later that evening, David told me that he hadn't actually seen those pictures before, but remarked that that firearm had been just a few meters from where he'd slept, and he hadn't known. I can't be sure, and that wasn't a phone call that I recorded, but I seem to recall that it sounded as if David physically shuddered at the thought. While I refused to post the images of Donnie and Annika taken at the crime scene, because they don't need to be remembered that way. These pictures will be posted on our blog, and you'll find details of that in the show notes. After changing his plea several times, much to the annoyance of Judge Charmaine Bolton, Gordon eventually pleaded guilty to all charges. After all, the evidence against him was staggering, and the case watertight. Now, while David and I have our doubts about his remorse at the time of his arrest, it would seem that the gravity of his situation did gradually sink in over the course of his hearing, with both the court-appointed social worker, Don B. Quella, who assessed Gordon while he was in custody, and state advocate Ria Mina, the prosecutor in the case, claiming to believe that Gordon did, in fact, show remorse for his actions. 
However, remorseful or not, that didn't stop Gordon from trying to play the dread disease card. Apparently, while awaiting sentencing, Gordon tested HIV positive, and he tried to use his diagnosis in mitigation of sentence. Personally, I find this disgusting. He ended two lives, and then tried to reverse stigmatize an illness that, even in 2008, was hardly a death sentence. Unlike what he had carried out on Dani and Annika. In aggravation of sentence, however, Rhea reminded the court that the murders had been premeditated. In her words, the worst part is that these were his friends. Dombey also recommended in her report that Gordon be sentenced to imprisonment. There is no doubt their affection felt towards Dania and Annika and that their murders deeply affected their friends and loved ones. When Gordon was sentenced, several of them turned up to see justice done and thankfully this is one instance where justice was not denied. There was a fair amount of people in courts. Um, it wasn't full, but it certainly wasn't a case of empty. Um, the only people there for Gordon were, turned out to be his grandparents who had actually flown up for the, the final day of the sentencing. Okay. But there must have been easily 15, 20 people, including the Norwegian consul's representative in Durban. Okay. Um, a whole host of friends, including a couple of police officers who knew Annika from the scene as well. Okay. From, when I say the scene, I mean the gay scene. Okay. And what was the reaction to the sentence by Annika's friends? Basically, it was very much under the under the breath type of jubilation. Um, every time a, a sentence was read out, it was a case of yes, uh, very relieved about the sentencing. Okay, uh, very happy about the sentencing. Judge Bolton called Gordon's actions brutal, cold-blooded, and callous, and imposed two life sentences for the murders: fifteen years for robbery. 8 years for housebreaking, 3 years for possession of a firearm, and 18 months for possession of ammunition. All sentences were to run concurrently. Do you think the sentencing was fair? Yes and no. Yes, as in like the 25 years per murder. No, as far as I'm concerned, he's taken two lives that should have been served consecutively and not concurrently. Justin, however didn't share David's opinion that the sentence could have been harsher. Do you feel the sentences were appropriate? Absolutely. He killed his friends. Fair enough. I also asked Rhea, as an advocate, if she shared David's opinion on the sentence, or leaned towards agreeing with Justin, and I learned something new. According to South African legislation, Rhea told me, it is not possible for life sentences to be served consecutively. As soon as a life sentence is imposed, any other sentence runs concurrently with that sentence, even if it's another life sentence. I seriously considered tracking Gordon down and giving him an opportunity to explain what was going through his mind when he did what he did. But then I heard something that made up my mind, and I decided against it. I realized that by giving him a voice, 
I would be shitting on the memories of Dani and Annika, and that is not something I was prepared to do. This here was the moment where I decided, as mentioned in the beginning, that my podcast would be a voice for the victims, not the perpetrators. Okay, full disclosure. Right at the start, I mentioned that I have a direct connection to someone directly involved in this case. And this is the reason I chose the murder of Annika Soft and Donnie Robertson as my first case to cover. David Normanton is one of my best friends. But I only actually heard about this case for the first time in the middle of 2019, while David and I were just shooting the shit one night. I had no idea that mere months before David and I really got to know each other, he and Ashley had been smack bang in the middle of a murder trial. Ashley even testified for the state. Meanwhile, I was completely oblivious to the fact that this had even gone down. However, when the seed for this podcast was planted, I knew exactly which case I would be covering first. I had a direct line to someone who was able to give me a first-hand account of what our killer was like. And I intended to make the most of it. Which I think I actually have. Anyway, I was wrapping up my interview with David, and I'd even stopped recording when he mentioned something almost in passing that he'd never told me before. He was referring to that Thursday when the police brought Gordon back to the townhouse, and it sent chills down my spine. I asked him to repeat it, this time on the record. I was at work uh, when the police came around and did the investigation through the house, uh, more specifically in Gordon's room. However, the officer in charge that came round didn't know us from the scene, the gay scene, and he told Gordon to tell my housemates what was it what it was that he said to them. Basically, Gordon said that we, as in my housemate and I, were next on his hit list. And if he hadn't been caught, I wouldn't be here today by the sound of things. If Gordon hadn't been caught, we could have had a serial killer on our hands, and this would have been a very, very different story. I also would never have gotten to know David. Sure, we met for the first time in August 2007, but I only really got to know the man who had eventually become one of my best friends from mid-2009. It was sobering, especially considering what David said. He didn't think the murders were on the cards, until they suddenly were. Had Gordon not made the series of crucial mistakes, starting with returning to the scene, presumably to plunder more loot, irrespective of his claims of remorse, and ending with his either arrogance or stupidity, David and Ashley could have become another statistic. And who knows where it would have ended. Would you say that the shock of what happened back in 2008 is still felt down in Durban? I couldn't tell you. It was a long time ago, but I will say that 2008... 2009 would later become known, in smaller circles, as the social suicide. I might even say murder of Durban's gay club scene. Gordon was incarcerated at Westfall Prison until his conviction. But, as Westfall doesn't keep lifers, he was subsequently transferred. David suspects he was moved to Polesmoor in Cape Town, to be closer to his father and grandparents. But I was unable to establish this conclusively, before I eventually 86 the idea of trying to find him at all. I did ask Rhea how it works for violent crimes cases. Would Gordon be eligible for parole soon? 
or will he have to serve his full sentence before he is released? Her email reply was brief but conclusive. According to current legislation, he only becomes eligible for parole after serving the full 25 years. This means he would only be seeing the outside world in 2034, at the age of 49. And this brings us to the end of the story of Annika and Gordon, but not yet Donnie. And that's what makes this case a crime most queer, in the bizarre context. Remember when I said that I found the mention of there being a knife involved interesting? Remember when I mentioned that Donnie had previously lived on the Berea? Remember when I spoke about what Gordon stole, I mentioned that he also swiped Donnie's anti-anxiety medication? Well, let's revisit all of this, shall we? This was not the first time that Donnie was linked to a murder. In fact, the police had tried at first to connect this case to a previous one, and this sent my spidey senses into overdrive, especially considering Justin's refusal to have his voice recorded. You refused to be interviewed unless it was under condition of complete anonymity. Obviously, Justin is not your real name. May I ask why you were reluctant to speak to me? Look, the LGBTQ community is a minority, and although we have marriage rights, we still have homophobia and hate crimes in South Africa. I need to protect myself and my partner's identity. These are different times, but they are still very dangerous times we are living in. But what was this other case, I hear you ask? Well, 19 months earlier, while staying on the Berea, Donnie had gotten together with his friend Tony Steenkamp to celebrate Tony's 45th birthday. As a birthday gift to Tony, Donnie had invited two 21-year-old rent boys to join them. By the end of the evening, Tony had been stabbed repeatedly and was bleeding to death on his bedroom floor, while Donnie tried desperately to save his friend's life. One of the two rent boys was arrested, but subsequently released. The other fled the scene and was on the run. This whole incident had a profound effect on Donnie, leaving him severely traumatized and in need of medicated psychiatric therapy. But that is a story for another time. Although definitely a story we will be getting into later this year. But let's get back to this story and wrap things up. I feel like this case has presented me with more questions than answers. And I'm seriously up in the air about whether it has actually reached a definitive conclusion or not. Like I said right in the beginning. Sometimes I look at a case, and something doesn't feel quite right with the official story. This is one of those cases. Were Donnie and Annika's murders and the killing of Tony Steenkamp somehow linked? Was Donnie's death a case of tying up loose ends and Annika just collateral damage? And if so, why was Gordon's attack on Annika so much more vicious? As I mentioned before I went into detail on what supposedly transpired that Monday night, what I told you was the official story, and it relies heavily on Gordon's statement. But what if that first-hand account was false? What if Gordon lied? I have a theory that deviates from the official story, and by my reckoning, the pieces seem to fit together a little more snugly. But let me just be clear here. This is a theory for which I have no concrete proof to back it up. But it does seem to make a bit more sense. First we need to assume that Donnie was indeed a loose end in the Tony Steenkamp murder, and that he needed taking care of. Gordon 
recently unemployed and eager to get his life back on track, was approached because A, he was desperate, and B, he was known to Donnie, with them having previously worked together. One possible scenario was that he was offered a significant amount of money once he had dealt with the Donnie problem. Another is that the people who approached him were the same people he owed money to, and they agreed to squash his debt in exchange for a favour. Either way, they would have told Gordon that they were connected with influential people, and that they would make any charges he may face miraculously disappear. This might explain why Gordon was so cocksure that Tuesday evening, when he went over for a chinwag with the group standing outside Donnie and Annika's place. He didn't think for a second that he would ever see the inside of a police van, let alone a prison cell. Gordon claimed that he and Donnie had been mixing tranquilizers with the wine that night in order to get drunk faster. Previously I said that perhaps he just needed Dutch courage to commit the robbery, and that I found nothing to indicate that Gordon had intentionally drugged Donnie. But again, I'm relying on Gordon's statement here, and I don't know how accurate that is. Was Donnie even aware of the fact that Gordon was spiking the wine with Donnie's own tranquilizers? When Gordon moved off the bed, the first thing he did was to remove the revolver from his shoulder bag. I mentioned that I could find no explanation for him doing this, seeing as he was going to be creeping around the room, laying claim to his loot. But perhaps he wasn't creeping around the room after all. Perhaps this was the moment he'd been waiting for all evening. Let's go back to the scene of the crime. I'm not going to go into as much detail as I did previously, so you should be able to cope, even if you're squeamish. But if you really don't want to hear this, jump ahead about a minute and a half. Annika turned in for the night and Gordon and Donnie retired to Donnie's bedroom. Gordon continued to ply Donnie with the spiked wine and eventually Donnie nods off. Gordon climbs off the bed and takes out the gun. The intention is to take care of Donnie while he is asleep, maybe using a pillow as a silencer. But the sound of Gordon moving around the room rouses Donnie. Gordon needs to act quickly and without anything to muffle the sound, he shoots Donnie from across the room, killing him instantly. But to make sure the job is done, Gordon grabs a knife that's lying around and stabs him in the neck. At this point, Annika, awoken by the gunshot, bursts into the room, sees Gordon looming over Donnie with a knife in his hand and a gun within easy reach, and freaks the fuck out. Gordon leaps off the bed and rushes towards her, at which point Annika turns and flees in the direction of her bedroom, with Gordon right behind her. He manages to stab her in the right shoulder multiple times as she runs away. She makes it to her room, but not fast enough to be able to barricade the door. Gordon's silhouette fills her doorway, and Annika, now terrified, begs for her life. But Gordon realizes she will just become a loose end of her own. He shoots her in the face, and she collapses on the bed. Gordon crosses the room, places the gun against her head, and fires the second shot. Gordon then busies himself around the flat, gathering together the items he intends to make off with. He is, after all, starting a new life, and there's all this stuff lying around that belongs to nobody now. He's in no hurry. He's biding his time, listening out for any approaching sirens. Once he is certain the coast is clear, he loads Annika's car and leaves the scene. Adrenaline is still pumping through his veins, and he needs something to take the edge off. Donnie's anti-anxiety meds just aren't doing the trick, but he's broke. 
This is when he decides to raid Crinkly Bottom Park. He grabs the money and the projector, another nice to have when you're starting out, and heads home. After unloading the car, he gives David a lift to work, and probably stops by his dealer on the way back to Morningside Gardens, which would explain how he managed to get through the whole of Monday and the whole of Tuesday without any sleep. The rest of my story plays out as already discussed. I don't think Gordon ever really contemplated that he would actually be convicted. This may explain why he kept changing his plea. This does raise the question of why he kept quiet, even after he was sentenced. Maybe he was threatened. Maybe he was promised a sizable payout on his eventual release. I suppose this is something I will need to ask him one day, if I ever do speak to him. Also, the timing was way too perfect to be a coincidence. If you're going to carry out a hit to tie up loose ends, the same night as a massive concert featuring an international star is ideal. Most of Durban is out for the evening, getting all sorts of warm fuzzies care of James Blunt. Alcohol would have flowed, and the party vibes in Durban would have been electrifying. But, being a Monday night, most people would have had work the next day. So chances of it being a late night for most would have been slim. They would have headed home and gone to bed, possibly sleeping a little deeper than normal, thanks to the booze. Any shenanigans may well have gone unnoticed due to everything else going on that night. It is a conspiracy theory, absolutely. But it does make sense when you think about it. The fact that people who knew Donnie and Annika don't seem to want to talk about their murders raises all sorts of red flags for me. But I can't quite pinpoint what those red flags are trying to show me. This, however, makes for the most logical hypothesis in my mind. This story turned out to be a labyrinth of epic proportions. It's a rabbit hole with rabbit holes. And who can say how deep it actually goes? Do you think this was a hate crime? Justin avoided this question. Twice. Do you think that there are facts about the case that never came to light during the trial and sentencing? I couldn't say. Alright. Well, let's say that there were. After all, you're not the only person who didn't want to speak to me. Do you think maybe these unrevealed details have ensured that the fear of repercussion for discussing what happened is still alive and well and felt more than a decade later? I don't know. I guess we may never know for certain. Before I go, I'd like to thank Nicole Engelbrecht from the podcast True Crimes of Africa for the help and guidance she's given me in getting this podcast off the ground. Nicole is absolutely to blame for planting the seed for this podcast, and I'm eternally grateful. In truth, until that conversation, I'd had a very different plan in mind, but I think this topic is far more interesting. And talking of interesting... If you're curious about true crime from the bottom end of our dark continent, not necessarily from an LGBTQ perspective, you absolutely should give True Crime South Africa a listen. Nicole's research into the cases she covers is extraordinary, and she really gets to the meat of the crimes she presents. True Crime South Africa is available on most podcast platforms, and it's definitely one you need to add to your library. You'll find a link to the TCSA website in the show notes, or you can search for True Crime South Africa on your preferred podcast app. 
I'd also like to give a shout out to CJ of the American-based LGBTQ true crime podcast Beyond the Rainbow for the inspiration her podcast gave me in giving this genre a go from a South African angle. Beyond the Rainbow doesn't only stick to American cases and even touches on corrective rape in South Africa, something we'll be covering soon too. Definitely give this series a listen. As with True Crimes of Africa, you'll find a link to the Beyond the Rainbow podcast's website in the show notes, or you can search for it on your podcast app of choice. Also, I'd like to thank Daniel Oersteisen and my incredible guinea pig crew for the assistance, the encouragement, and the brutal honesty I received when it came to getting this episode just right. Words cannot express how grateful I am. Lastly, I want to say a huge thank you to Advocate Rhea Mina, David Normanton, and our anonymous friend Justin for taking the time to share their stories and insights. I would not have been able to do the memories of Donnie and Annika justice without your invaluable assistance. You've been listening to Deadly Friends, episode one of A Crime Most Queer, a South African LGBTQ true crime podcast presented by VA Amazing and conceptualized, written and produced by me, NJ Hawkeby with editorial oversight by Richard Thompson and David Normanton. Additional voice talent was provided by Keaton Harris, Mark Delgaris, and Janine McLean, with original music by Joseph McDade. This is a bi-weekly podcast, with episodes releasing every second Wednesday, and is available on most podcasting platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. Alternatively, we publish all episodes along with transcripts and additional content to our website, www.acmq.co.za. You can also find us on social media by searching for A Crime Most Queer on Facebook and Twitter, or you can contact us via email at comment at acmq.co.za. If you would like to support the show, you can become a Patreon from just $1 or around 15 Rand per month. You'll be helping to keep our podcast afloat. And to show our appreciation, our Patreons will get access to exclusive content as well as free gifts and discounts on our merch store when it is launched. Donations help us to expand our research capabilities and improve recording equipment and facilities. And your small monthly donation will go a long way in ensuring that this podcast gets better and better. Alternatively, if you prefer to just make a one-off donation, you can visit our paypal.me link. You'll find links to all of these in the show notes. Support comes in many ways, however, and we appreciate anything you can do to help to get our victims' stories out there, whether it be making a donation, following us on social media, getting involved in our discussions, or sharing our episodes with your friends and family. We are eternally grateful for your support. Thank you for listening, and join me again next time when we will unpack another case that is a crime most queer.